0: he knows, as well as you know, that the absolute destruction of ISIS is not in the cards.
1: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkoff, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today I'm joined by FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Also with us is Jeff Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic. And finally, we have Mike Zenko, senior fellow in the Center for Preventative Action at the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the new book, Red Team, How to Succeed by Thinking Like the Enemy. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Hi, guys. So now we've got people all across the country. Corey's off on the left coast and Micah's in New York and here we've got Jeff here in Washington. Over the course of the past four weeks, we've seen a series of terrorist attacks. We've seen a Russian plane brought down over Sinai. We've seen an attack in Beirut. We've seen an attack in Paris. We've seen an attack in Mali. Uh, And it's stirred up a lot of reaction. It's stirred up political reaction here in the US. It stirred up reaction from leaders in all the affected countries. How do you think we're doing with this reaction, Jeff? How do you rate our reaction to these series of terrorist attacks um, in light of past reactions?
0: One of the things that's surprising to me is the is the the level of American response, and it, it's kind of evinced itself or, or 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 showed itself through this subsidiary issue or semi unrelated issue of the Syrian refugees. The anxiety came out in that in that way, um, but I was surprised that an attack committed by Arabs in a foreign country prompted the reaction that it did in this country, where basically the, the whole. Presidential campaign has reoriented itself around issues of terrorism. I just came from uh, uh, a meeting with uh, Chris Christie, and uh, you know he he's he's a, a on the rebound, I guess, because he's a na- he's seen as a national security candidate, and uh, I, I'm surprised the degree to which this is this has moved the country, and maybe it's about. Paris in particular, maybe because Paris is the dream city of all Americans. Uh, Maybe it's because people are worried about the... I guess the rhetoric coming from the White House and maybe the the, the strategy uh, that, that's been suggested to me—I don't know what it is—but I'm surprised that it's been as intense as it is. And of course, that makes me a little bit worried because intense reactions to these kind of events uh, we sometimes regret having uh, intense reactions to
1: these events. Well, that's for sure, Corey. You're a Republican. You've been in Republican administrations, aren't you? Terribly embarrassed?
2: Uh, worse than embarrassed. I'm ashamed. Our reaction about Syrian refugees conflates the victims and the perpetrators of the attack in Paris. It's disgraceful. And far too Republican senior stateswomen and senior statesmen have stomped their feet and said, this is un-American.
1: Talk about Donald Trump.
2: Oh, God, must I?
1: You must. That's why you get paid the no bucks.
2: Trump has reacted on this in the way he has reacted on so many other things, right? He says something outrageous, um, gets lots of media attention. Uh, Fact checkers show that he has no idea what he's talking about, and which gets him a second round of press attention. Um, I'm sure you folks also saw the study, the sociological study a couple of weeks ago that points out that repeating false information creates the impression that it's true, right? It it essentially is free advertising for falsity every time Trump gets covered. Um, And, like, I understand why news outlets do it. It's tantalizing and newsworthy. Um, But I also think it is penalty-free for voters to join in the merriment at the moment. Uh, But... But I am actually confident in the good sense of the vote, American voting public, and I think when they actually have to choose a candidate, they're not going to choose somebody as dangerous as Donald Trump is dangerous.
1: Micah, you wrote a book where the subtitle is How to Succeed by Thinking Like the Enemy. Uh, you know, I can only imagine that if I were in ISIS and I perpetrated an attack like this and my goal were terror, what I'd really want— were some demagogic politicians stirring up hatred and saying awful things about Muslims. When you put your thinking like the enemy hat on, don't you think we're playing right into their hands?
3: Well, this gets to the question of how coherent and unified a message does ISIS uh, project? And is there sort of intended strategic goals, their actual strategic goals? This is a very interesting conversation, which I've had with a number of People who study this issue closely, both in and out of government, they claim they want to establish a caliphate, which has this clear definition and this clear sense of, uh, of, of sort of imposing justice and governing and ruling. But is that what they really want? Uh, one thing we know about sort of all militant and terrorist groups like this is they want to survive at a minimum, and they're quite good at doing that. Um, uh, having and if you look, there's a great Pew poll. If your if your readers haven't looked at it recently, where they Sort of uh, um, survey a number of Arab and Muslim countries to assess ISIS favorability. ISIS is incredibly hated. I mean, relatively compared to Al Qaeda and all Al Qaeda affiliated groups through the 2000s, everybody hates ISIS. So, you know, trying to convince um, neutral third-party Muslim countries to oppose ISIS doesn't even need to be done. It's already occurring, um, and it almost doesn't. And you also ask the question: Does it matter what Western politicians say? Because does that really change the mind if I'm, again, a third party who is not affiliated or motivated by terrorism? Do I care what Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Barack Obama says, for that matter? Probably not. I probably don't read their speeches or listen to them quite closely. But I would say where it has more impact than on those individuals who may become self-motivated to conduct terrorism or travel to the region to participate in the fight is it sort of has an impact on people watching. Right. And there are a lot of allies and there are a lot of neutrals that you want to do certain things to, to uh, support uh, the, uh, the, the broader 65 coalition strategy. And to the extent that it looks like a um, sort of end of days religious apocalyptic war uh, with really unclear um, goals and, again, demagoguing uh, Muslim Americans and all Muslims, I think it hurts your ability to, to get more countries to bandwagon with you against ISIS when you speak and behave in that manner.
1: Jeff, earlier you referred to the White House's strategy with regard to this and their rhetoric. I'm pretty clear on their rhetoric. Could you elaborate on what you meant by strategy? You're not going to bait me, Rothkoff.
0: (laughs) Uh, You know, the the, the fact of the matter is is that uh, when France, the putative leader uh, right now in the campaign against ISIS... When they fire rockets, France,
1: the leader of the Western world. Well,
0: when they well, but here's the here's the 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 more complicated truth is that uh, the the targets they're firing at are provided by the Americans. Their planes that are doing the firing are refueled by Americans. The search and rescue teams that would go in and get the pilots if they get shot down are American. Uh, so uh, I don't think this White House does it necessarily a great job of communicating what it's been doing. And I'm sure there's a good argument to be made that they could intensify uh, what they've been doing and increase the pace maybe of what they're doing. But there is a strategy. There's a strategy to degrade ISIS. I think the president doesn't want to get caught up. Look, I'm not speaking for the president here. I just I'm, I'm, I'm familiar being on this trip with, with some of their thinking. The president doesn't want to get caught up in overpromising. The destruction of ISIS, uh, he knows as well as you know that the absolute destruction of ISIS is not in the cards uh, in the short term. There'll always be, uh, especially in the in this age of bottom up terrorism, where you can have a, a cell that develops organically in any one of a hundred world capitals and, and then affiliates itself with the ISIS brand. Uh, he knows that that absolute defeat is not possible, and and I would imagine that. Uh, there are a lot of people in, in in the White House who look at France's rhetoric, which is understandable given given what just happened. Look at the rhetoric and say that's a bit of an overpromise there. But I, I, I do understand it as a strategy. I'm sure you have your uh, your view, you, which, which you will now make known to the world. But uh, there is a strategy there that could be intensified. But I don't I don't think you can call it incoherent. My vi- I didn't say incoherent. I'm, not, I'm saying I don't think you should.
1: Okay, but a preempted. I think, that was a preemptive strike. Oh, but I think it is incoherent. Um, but there but, you go. That, but having said that, my strategy, my reaction to this is, I'm sure, precisely halfway between Corey and Micah's. Corey,
2: <laughs> I I agree. The president has a strategy, and I actually think it's a clear strategy. And it is to do as absolutely little as he can get away with doing against a threat that is burgeoning as a result of us doing so little.
1: Micah?
3: Um, I I want to double agree with the two previous uh, speakers. There is a strategy. The president announced it to the nation on September 10, 2014. It has been uh, reiterated by all senior uh, policymakers before Congress and in various speeches uh and 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 addresses uh the problem is the clearly articulated end state which uh jeff point out is to destroy it's not to defeat it's to degrade and ultimately destroy uh will never be achieved with the political will and level of commitment by the united states and all other members of the coalition now this is also true for other uh articulated end states under president bush and under president obama both of who claimed that they would defeat and destroy terrorist groups None of them have been defeated or destroyed, and in fact, if you look at the uh, at the size of the groups that the U.S. is at war with, they have they have sort of only increased uh, uh, over over the years, and they spread to more countries. If you look at the number of State Department labeled foreign terrorist organizations, they've grown from 34 uh, in 2002 to 59 today. Uh, so I'm assuming that both uh, the U.S. and the coalition will not commit the resources, and the political will, and the time. To destroy ice so there is a strategy it will never be achieved
1: okay but really when we get to US strategy the objective is to advance. US national interests and in the case of security it's to protect us and in the case of protecting us it doesn't really turn on whether or not we fully defeat, Um, any particular terrorist threat, but rather that we identify threats and that we minimize them as best we can and that we recognize, therefore, that there are a whole web of interconnected threats out there, all of which must be addressed if we are, in fact, going to reduce this, which requires a kind of holistic view of dealing with a region like the Middle East where there are multiple terrorist actors, where we've learned about whack-a-mole in the desert, and where there are also political and economic and social and other issues that are contributing factors, and that if the way we go into this thing is with the minimum number of troops trying to take the minimum amount of action to have the most, you know, uh, to, to, to have the, create the appearance of action against one particular terror actor, clearly, whether we defeat them or not, we are not going to reduce the threats that face us. Isn't that actually the case? someone?
2: Yes, David, that is actually the case. The president keeps getting flat-footed, right, first by saying these guys are a JV team, then by saying they're contained, uh, and in between believing that they lacked both the ability and the means to carry out t- attacks beyond the Syria's territory, which we've written off the Syrian's
0: Along with it. One, one of the things that's going on here, I think, and, and again, trying to trying to imagine what's going through the president's mind is, is that uh, he really does believe that we're not talking about imperial Japan here or Nazi Germany. We're talking about uh, a relatively small gang of vicious killers whose brutality will cause their cause to burn out and therefore one of the things you have to guard against is to turn this rhetorically and then strategically into a world-ending apocalyptic battle with the ultimate evil Um, and, and you know there's there's a good argument to be made that uh, he's learned the lessons of the post 9-11 era. There's a good argument to be made that maybe he's overlearned the lessons of, of the post 9-11 era. But I don't think it's absurd uh, for him to, 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 to think that uh, he ought not to turn – ISIS into these 10-foot-tall monsters that are coming to America and are going yeah, to and that... uh, it, it, it represent some sort of existential threat to, to, to our country.
2: Okay, but there's a lot of space between Imperial Japan and what we are looking at with ISIS. I agree they're not 10 feet tall. Um, the American Marine Corps could do a lot of damage to them pretty quickly. So, by the way, could the Poles, the Turks, anybody else... Um so so they're not undefeatable, but that also doesn't justify treating them as though they are no threat at all. Because the city of Brussels is completely shut down. Paris has been terrorized. There is cost to doing too little.
1: Well that's you know, that's a very good point. Micah, one of the assertions uh, that that has underlay U.S. foreign policy with regard to the Middle East, uh, certainly over the course of the past six or seven years, is we could dial back our, our involvement in it. We could let other people take care of it and that the issues would essentially stay local. But what we're seeing here is that, for example, the meltdown of Syria, uh, which initially was not actually about ISIS, but it was about our failure to respond to well, the depredations of the Assad regime, Um, But the meltdown of Syria is actually a local issue in Europe and by becoming a local issue in Europe is a major issue for the future of NATO, which is the most important alliance the U.S. is in. So the assumption that somehow we could pull back and not be directly engaged and not put our shoulder to the wheel does seem to have had knock-on effects that – um, have 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 spun this up into something rather different. Is they, do you agree or disagree?
3: Uh, well, I, I would say one is to be very clear about what's being done and what's not being done. I mean, the, the, I spend most of my time looking at the military line of effort uh, with regards to to, the, to this. And here, obviously, there are many local powers with uh, fields of advanced air forces that, if they chose to. Uh, to go after either ISIL or the Assad regime could do so fairly easy. Uh, they might want some help with in-air refueling, uh, combat search and rescue, and they might need some cruise missiles to take out some air defense radars beforehand. But they have that capa- most of those capabilities anyway. So if they wanted to, they could be doing more. Uh, Europe, same thing. Other than France, which has conducted uh, roughly 10 to 12 percent of all this, of, of the airstrikes, almost all of them in Iraq, it's primarily a United States game. Uh, doing all of the strikes, and we do like 95% of the strikes in Syria. Uh, if you look at the number of trainers on the ground, France has 200 trainers in Iraq, none of them in a combat position. Um, so, if these countries did care, uh, there are a number of steps which they could take to intensify their commitment, uh, both Europe and the Middle East. And we have asked them, and we have tried to lead and and cohere, and and to engage. I mean, this is you you hear all the presidential candidates; they all say roughly the same thing, which is. We need to lead more, um, uh, we need to intensify our efforts, we need to, quote, engage with. I mean, the steps that other countries need to take are fairly well-known, it's been briefed to them fairly often, uh, and they simply won't do it. Um, so the question is, if the U.S. Uh, walked away, which I don't think anybody's proposing they walked away, would the situation get worse? My suspicion is it would, because the U.S. plays such a critical enabling role in terms of logistics, military, and training. Uh, and, and intelligence and surveillance support, so I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, but I think we should be a little more explicit about who's doing what and why the countries who need to be doing more simply refuse to.
2: Can I weigh in on that? Because I think that's a really good point, but it it's wrong to view it in the abstract without, um, without also weighing in the fact that Us having walked away from Iraq and had been on a path to walk away from Afghanistan, nobody wants to deal with this problem if we're not going to be there with them. And our credibility is so much in question, especially in the Middle East right now, that I don't see how politically we can get other countries to step up unless we say we're going to be standing right beside them. I think two, three years ago, we could have gotten away with a standoff role and encouraging others. But, I mean, if you were Sunni, would you trust us to go headlong into this fight when we say we're going to be there with you? I think we're actually going to have to prove it every day.
1: Jeff, you're one of the most experienced uh, people in Washington at covering and looking at and meeting with people from the Middle East. You were just in Abu Dhabi. What's the answer to that question?
0: Abu Dhabi, the heart of the Middle East problem, right? Um, It's, it's, it's. uh, I mean, Abu Dhabi is interesting in the sense that it is this very placid island uh, in, in, um, in a dangerous.
1: See, you know, I. But well, surely I, there were there people there talking about this. Look,
0: thing. I understand what Corey's saying, um, you know, and that there's a low level of trust on the part of our traditional Sunni allies that we are interested in, in further engagement or standing by, uh, standing by them in the traditional ways that we have. Uh, I would also say that you know, when push comes to shove, they they only have one strategic ally and partner, and it's the United States. Um, they 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 they. they, they they complain and, and moan a, a great deal about our lack of commitment, but, uh, you, you know, we have reason to complain about their behavior, and I think the American— look. I, I interviewed Ash Carter a couple of weeks ago. He went out of his way repeatedly to sort of call out the Gulf states he He made actually he turned UAE of which Abu Dhabi is the most important component He, he made an exception for UAE but he he basically called out all of our Sunni allies for for not putting their money where their mouth is um you know it, 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 they never uh, they never contribute meaningfully uh, You mean it, the
1: Jordanians should take more than two million. Syrian refugees we're
0: talking about we're talking about engaging we're not really talking about Jordan as much as we are talking about Egypt and the Gulf states but but we're you know but but yeah I mean you know there is this there is this growing frustration with uh uh with the Sunnis uh for demanding the US do X, Y, and Z for them and, and hey, look they're they're barely you know, they were in the fight against ISIS. They've shifted their resources and their attention to this, you know, useless fight in Yemen of uh, they're barely making any bombing runs. Over Syria or Iraq uh, anymore, and so you know. I, well, I, but I, to be fair, I, that you know, whole thing- I, you and I both have heard their their complaints, and and you know, some of them are justified. But it's it's. Uh, I went to a GCC meeting last year, and I, I really learned something just by by watching this closely. They couldn't even get their agenda organized till Chuck Hagel showed up. I mean, Chuck Hagel, no no great defense, you know, whatever not.
2: Say if Chuck Hagel is the standard of administrative competence that no, really but This is this is what
0: happened. I mean literally until Chuck Hagel the you know the Metternich of of uh, of our time uh showed showed up. They couldn't get their act together. And so that's what we're talking about and you know and I think there we we do engage over the years in this kind of this process of juvenilization or, or or infantilization where you know we, t- we 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 say don't worry we'll do everything for you and um you know, I I, I, I don't know. I, I I don't mean to be be down on them. They're, these these countries are our, are our friends, but uh, and, and they certainly represent non revolutionary, non fundamentalist. I'll, I'll make a carve out here for Saudi Arabia, which plays an interesting game, but uh, they they do represent less pernicious uh, forces than than we currently see in the Middle East. But uh, I. I, I I don't want to just take the – to do the axiomatic. Well, if our – if if a bunch of monarchs in the desert are are mad at the American president, they must be right and the American
1: president must be wait, wrong. OK. But let's – OK. OK. That's watch, absolutely watch. true. Yeah, Everybody's mad at the American president. Who thinks he's doing a good job? Who likes the way that he's handling this thing? Putin doesn't. I don't care. Putin's Putin a doesn't? Why, wait, a second. Why? Wait, wait a second. I'm just saying. Putin, he's a terrible guy. OK. Stipulate it. The Europeans – you, Francois Hollande is, you know, behind the scenes, pushing and pushing and
0: pushing. Francois Hollande in front of the scenes won't even contribute troops to a, any, any ground effort in, in Syria. So, so I mean, really, okay, uh, again, okay, 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 know, okay. So, so baby, I don't mean to sound like an isolationist, but I'd like everybody else to sort of participate as well.
1: Well, let me, uh, Micah, as you go and look at the world's response to this, do you think the U.S. is— symptomatic of a sort of a global inability to get their act together on this stuff, or the lack of U.S. leadership is contributing to this, or we're overstating the lack of U.S. leadership and actually everything's roughly the way you would have expected? Uh, Well,
3: uh, it's hard to measure the entire globe's response, but uh, I think... (laughs) What is Bolivia's
1: current position? Okay, this This is why we're here doing this podcast, is to deal with the entire globe's response.
3: I might, I might lose my senior fellow ranking at a think tank to say this, but uh, I think the, the notion that the United States has omniscience into what each country would really w- be willing to commit if there was additional visits or phone calls or diplomatic engagement is very difficult to know. Um, um, there are always collective action problems um, for responding to things like this when it is not in your core national interest, meaning it is not a direct threat to, a, uh, uh, to to the homeland, it poses some threat to a, tr- to a treaty ally in, in the case of Turkey, but less so. So I, I think it's very hard. I think people often overstate the ability of this president or the previous president to compel states mm. to do what is not in their national interest. And I'll just remind people that the largest coalition, as Donald Rumsfeld always called it in 2002, uh, the largest coalition in the world was, was uh, part of the uh, fight against al-Qaeda and most countries committed to it about to the extent they were interested in getting <clears throat> homeland security and counterterrorism training for the united states and maybe some intelligence sharing but most of them sort of filtered away at it uh and and they uh coalitions change over time they tend to get smaller over time uh people participate in waves and then they go away uh you know when there was the the pilot killed by the isis uh the uh, by isis the jordanians went in and had intensive bombing in syria and then they stopped When the Turks had the acts of terrorism connected to ISIS in the southern part of the country, they went in and bombed, and then they stopped. Uh, People participate at the level they're willing to do so at the time uh, 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 based upon the threat they feel. And I'll just say one last thing is the United States is really, really bad at making other countries feel threatened. Uh, It is impossible for us to project our threats onto other states. And the simple fact of the matter is that public opinion polling shows that countries nearer to Syria and Iraq feel less threatened by Isis than Western Europe and the United States we if, we are much more threatened even though we're much less likely to be harmed uh, by it so unless you can make them be more scared to commit more resources and I don't know how you do that because we've never been able to do that people are contributing to about the level they're willing to do so
1: well so far you know I think I mean it's c- clearly everything that you say is true uh, what, what when I say so far I mean, uh, we've seen countries feel as though that they're, you know, or assert that they're less scared by this. Um, but, you know, the Europeans would have said that two years ago, too. And now we're in a situation where there have been a series of attacks. A city uh, in Europe um, uh, has been shut down for a period of days out of fear of an attack. And it's almost certain this is going to continue to grow. It is almost certain that over the course of the next couple of years, there will be more attacks in Europe. There may be attacks elsewhere. There will be more turmoil. Um, what then? You know, a new president's going to come into office here in 15, 16, 17 months, whatever it is. What, the, we We are likely to live in an era over the next couple of years of. More attacks in more places stirred up by the fact that as you look across the Middle East, there are lots of extremist groups and there are lots of pockets of instability that seem very, very unlikely to become, you know, stabilized over the course of the next couple of years. You know, we we, we all agree that the response has been uh, uh, underwhelming and not terribly effective. Is there a path forward? Can we wrap this last couple of minutes of this podcast up with an, uh, you know, any sort of suggestions as to how we could be more effective in dealing with l- what looks like is a growing threat? Je- I'm looking at Jeff Goldberg, and he's looking like I should ask Corey.
0: Yeah, I think you should ask Corey.
2: <laughs> well, since Jeff that lead off uh, this podcast, I'll take it. I'll copy. go last. <laughs>
0: I'll just agree with whatever you say. I
2: think there are a couple of things. Um, one is that, uh, to me, it seems like there's a historical parallel between now and the 1890s where you had a lot of similar violence, terrorism. I knew you were going
1: to the 1890s. I was just sure that <laughs> William Jennings Bryan was going to figure right in the center of this. A lot of presidents were assassinated, <laughs> assassinated around <laughs> then, by the way, don't
0: you're right,
2: David, that I that I dove to the eighteen nineties. But but the parallel period. is that you see an enormous amount of technological innovation that is creating social dislodgement of of what had been comfortable patterns and you see societies adjusting to those in different at different rates and some societies are seen to be driving it and others are seen to seem to be trying to shield themselves from it. I do think that's a, a pretty close parallel and that suggests to me that yes, we are going to be dealing this, with this for some significant time, which means that the, the kind of let's wait and see approach um, is going to have a lot of appeal because this is going to feel wearying, it's going to be an enduring problem, but it is connected directly to two things. First, the quality of governance in places, right? Uh, Terrorism tends to, terrorists tend to migrate to poorly governed spaces. In that way, the parallel is actually to organized crime. But second of all, political leaders really need to invest in explaining to people what's happening, that we have an approach that doesn't overreact in the near term, but that does build success for the long term. And political leaders also need to understand when that approach isn't going to be good enough, and you need to do something short and sharp to be able to uh, reassure publics that, that the problem is manageable, and I think we're failing to do that. Latter, those latter two things now.
1: Micah,
3: um, so uh, I agree with you generally that the the issue of terrorism is growing significantly. Um, there, the year after nine eleven, there were seven hundred and twenty five terrorist fatalities globally. Last year, there were uh, three thousand. So the problem is growing um, uh, faster and faster. But it's not necessarily true that it's spreading. I mean, most terrorism occurs in just six countries. uh, uh, And these are countries, as Corey pointed out, tend to be uh, characteristic of poor governance, uh, poor ability to deliver security, or countries facing civil war. You know, if there's one thing we know, uh, transnational terrorism is almost always founded in civil wars. That's where people become uh, radicalized. That's where they become connected. That's where they learn the proficiency to conduct terrorist attacks. Um, so what's, what's interesting to me is that we have been trying roughly the same things over and over again for 14 years. If you read a 2002 counterterrorism strategy by President Bush, it looks very similar to the one put out by uh, this White House. We say we need to uh, counter violent extremism. We need to beat our counter messaging. We need to, we need to empower uh, uh, moderate Muslim voices, et cetera. Uh, we need to kill some, capture some, et cetera, and the problem just getting worse and worse. Uh, the way we, but we know how terrorist groups are defeated. We have a large body of policy-relevant literature anybody can read. Terrorism is defeated through two main ways. It's penetration by police and intelligence services, and it's some political reconciliation with people who can be reconciled. Uh, the only time terrorists are, terrorists, large terrorist groups are ever defeated by force, it is a scorched earth uh, campaign, very similar to what Sri Lanka did with the LTT, and I don't see a lot of appetite for doing that in the case of any of the terrorist groups that we face today. So uh, we're, we're on this sort of stuck-path dependency model of trying the same things over and over again. New civilians come into power, new politicians are elected, and then we wonder why it doesn't work. So uh, things are getting worse, but we're trying the same things again. That's the problem. It's the thinking about it, not necessarily the doing. What
0: well, what I do worry about is uh, inadequate or ineffective responses will eventually lead Western societies toward sri lanka models because we're not actually suicidal and if these events that we saw in paris and that people in brussels have been worried about and people everywhere else are worried about if these uh if these keep taking place at a steady pace or they god forbid get get worse uh, i think that you're going to have large majorities of populations of western countries demanding that raqqa for instance be bombed i mean no no more no more targeted uh no more no more targeting just let's 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 uh turn it into a sheet of glass and hope that uh that that we we, we kill in addition to everyone else we kill we kill the entire leadership of isis but again I, and and i i'm fatalistic about this stuff david because i think uh until we we, we figure out a ways to interrupt uh uh, processes that take place on social media, not only terrorists meeting other terrorists and organizing uh their terrorism but self radicalization uh until we until we figure out a way to interrupt that cycle and really until we figure out uh ways to do things that we 're not going to figure out one is a, a reformation within islam um in which in which uh, literal interpretations of text are are, are completely widely rejected because remember the ISIS represents a very small minority of people who think the way that, that ISIS leadership thinks, but there is there is tolerance for fundamentalist interpretation um, that is not that is not useful. Uh, and again, it goes to governance. I mean, you have ungoverned spaces, you have dysfunctional societies, disintegrating States. Uh, these are beyond our capacities to, to, to fix. I mean, I think that's one of the things we learned over the last 14 years. And so we're in it. And so the answer remains, uh, fighting as best as you can, not widening into a civilizational struggle, which is what, again, what I'm, what I'm fearful, it's going to become, um, and 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 resilience. I'm sorry to say. I, I mean, every place is going to become like Israel, where where you just accept as a price of doing business that every two weeks, three weeks, or in Israel, you see it every day. In in, in recent days, uh, people get hurt, people get killed by terrorists. Uh, we have developed a tolerance in this country for school shootings. Which is kind of remarkable when you think about it, but we've developed this tolerance. This is the price of being who we are. Um, I think we're 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 going to be moving toward a more uh, resilient model. That or we're going to go all Jacksonian on everybody and 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 scorch the earth, uh, unless we can maintain, unless we can keep a semi lid on 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 what what I fear is coming.
1: Well, look, I, I think that's a it's it's, it's grim, but I th- I think all of those perspectives are are uh, worth taking into consideration as we, as we look forward towards uh, the, the future on this. I, I, I fear a little bit that you know we have an administration that currently spends a lot of time talking about things like overpromising and talking about what we can't achieve, and we don't focus enough on what we can achieve. Uh, I think that we clearly have some deficiencies in our alliances in terms of dealing with the nature of the threats that we actually are likely to face uh, with the alliances built to handle old school uh, kinds of threats. I think that we are not strategic enough in looking across the broad region or broad set of issues because there's no way to address this without taking a four dimensional approach. You've got to deal with the battlefield reality. You have to deal with the political reality. You've got to deal with the humanitarian reality. And then you have to deal with the Long term development reality uh, that creates jobs and creates an alternative path for people in these societies. Uh, we, last year, for example, the international financial institutions gave less money to North Africa and the Middle East than any other region in the world. Uh, and, you know, th- these are flaws in our overview and flaws in our execution that have uh, enabled this problem to grow. But also, of course, the problem has grown for reasons that we have no influence over and we have to accept that. Uh, This has been a useful discussion. It's been a little bit depressing, but, you know, this is a podcast. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Right. This is a podcast about foreign (laughs) policy. And, you know, most of the people who listen to us are depressive living alone in dark rooms.
3: I really know how to suck uh, suck up to your audience. (laughs) A little bit.
1: No, no, the, the audience that we've got, the core subscribers now... Tens of thousands, of course, subscribers are still laughing over the comparison of Hegel to Metternich because that's the kind of stuff you pathetic nerds like. Um, and it, anyway, thank you very much, and we hope you pathetic nerds will be back to us for the next uh, for the next version of this podcast, uh, the Editor's Roundtable. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.